Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Floor is Rising. I am Sabertooth, and with me is Kizu. I'm a professional NFT collector, and Kizu is a professional art critic. On this podcast, we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting, and analyzing NFTs. So if you are a creator or collector of NFTs, or you want to be, jump in. The water's warm. Our next artist. The artist is a Latvian artist. His name is Shavan Builder. Okay, I'm pretty sure I got that wrong, but we'll go with it. So this is a you know very interesting artist who I've been following since he started his NFT journey. And what I find interesting and you know why I included Shavan Builder in this series is that his journey resembles like an English Premier League team in the sense that he started off primarily in, in Tezos, in the Hick et Nunc platform. And he was quite prolific on Hick et Nunc. Um, he released new works constantly and was extremely prolific. And then because he was so prolific and, and the quality of his works were so high, I mean, he was definitely one of the best generative artists on Hick Hit, et Nunc, that he was approached, discovered by Art Blocks, who invited him in to do a drop on the uh, Art Blocks platform. And, you know, he, he did that drop. It was very, very successful. You know, since he dropped the, the, the Blocks of Art, which is his Art Drops collection, he's now gone sort of full steam into doing uh, other projects in the Ethereum ecosystem. And you can't blame him because basically there are a lot more collectors on Ethereum than there are on him. And they spend a lot more, basically. And, and what I found interesting is that this was an example uh, of an artist who basically, you know, started off on a smaller platform, sort of killed it on that platform and sort of then graduated onto sort of the bigger platform. And I think this will, this is and will become a very, very common progression moving forwards, not just in the gender space, but just in the broader space of, of artists who might not have any presence, you know, at all, you know, in the NFT world or in any world um, who, who basically uses path to, to basically progress their career. What do you think? I see a parallel in terms of what are known as like big and small galleries in the traditional art world, right? right? So we all know that, you know, I think there's little dispute about which major, mostly Western galleries have the most clout because it, it often happens that an artist starts out with a smaller gallery and then as that artist gains recognition, then jumps ship and goes to a medium gallery and then finally, you know, like a blue chip gallery. I think it's always going to be going to, going to be a combination of the actual like concrete characteristics of each platform, which includes what chain they're on, and then the kind of abstract, more like, you know, unquantifiable name value of a platform. So then, you know, people will be like, oh, well, what kind of volume does it do? And we all know the OpenSea by far is the biggest. And then you have all these other platforms that have a reputation or, or people tend to associate them with certain works and certain artists. So I think this is going, this is all very good for the long-term development of the ecosystem. I think it's good to have that kind of differentiation in terms of not just like, you know, as we said, technical specs, but the public perception. And I think that gives that, that's what we need for a kind of healthy, balanced, and diverse NFT and crypto art scene. I want to divert the conversation back onto Shaman Builder's sort of aesthetics and more specifically, I guess, the, the structure of his art. Because he's one of the only artists that I've seen, if you look at his uh, art, especially his early art, that 
you know, he's always been a generative artist, but unlike the methodology of sort of a drop on, on art blocks, which is that the, the algorithm is encoded in a smart contract and what the collector is buying is a specific instantiation of that algorithm, a print. If you look at his Hick et Nunc early works, what they are is they are works where you are buying the algorithm itself. The algorithm is embedded in the NFT and essentially you click to generate a new work. So if you buy that NFT, you can basically generate as many works as you want just by clicking your mouse. It'll just generate a random input and then it'll generate. You basically have the generator that you bought basically instead of a specific print. I think it again plays back into like, what are you buying precisely with an NFT, right? And I think his choice to give you this option to generate the instantiation that you like the best, I think is, uh, it's good in the sense that I think it demonstrates the structure of the work, right? So the buyer, the collector, has an actual like real kind of like appreciation for, because this is only possible with this kind of work. It's good in the sense that now the collector is directly implicated in the, the final stage of that work. And I'm trying to think about over the course of our history where this has been the case. And I guess it's not too different from, for example, a commissioned work, right? Where you are in direct conversation with the artist, where you talk about the your requirements, you talk about the parameters that you want fulfilled. And of course, some of those things are not quite in your hands. Like the artist, obviously he or she has a certain style and say, just take an example, like a simple portrait. Obviously, you might want to be portrayed in a certain way, but ultimately you chose that artist because you chose that artist because you like his or her style. And the final product is going to be a combination of your parameters and the artist's parameters or his his or her style. Chavan Builder, I mean his his blocks of art drop on, on art blocks the floor is right now around six to six and a half Ethereum. Whereas just a few months ago, you know, his drops on Tezos were selling for five to 10 Tezos. So we're talking about the difference between $20,000 versus like 20 to $30 in the space of a few months, right? And now obviously since his sort of art drops has been so successful, his Tezos prices have sort of been pulled up. But I think it's a, the market as of today is telling us that the, you know, selling the specific instantiations is basically what the market wants. And I think what, you know, my personal opinion as to why this is, is that in essence, the art is a very small component of what people are buying. A lot of what they're buying is the relationship between the collectors. Because I think, you know, in a way, generative art is a bridge between two huge NFT markets. The first market being fine art and the second market being collectibles. And generative art is that bridge between those two markets. The most defining and sort of the most market welcome characteristics of collectibles is, is essentially this loot box mechanic of a drop, right? Where people are dropping and they're, they're sort of waiting with bated breath. What did I get? What are, the, what are the rarities of the things that I got? Like how rare is it? And, and fine art doesn't really provide that, right? It doesn't provide that thrill of, of kind of that loot box drop mechanic that collectibles do. And generative art does. 
I would stop you there and just say that I don't think that's the case. I think the analogy is a good one, but it's somewhat inaccurate. Picasso's Blue Period, for example, is more valuable or more innovative or it was considered more and therefore valuable and therefore covetable. Whereas his ceramics, for example, because Picasso also did ceramics, oh, it's just something that he did as a hobby and like it's worth nothing because he was a shit potter, for example. And then they're like, okay, well, those collectors who love Picasso and they actually do like the pottery that he made will go for that. But it's considered a niche thing. And the general consensus is that that's the part of his work that's less valuable because it was less technically proficient. We saw with the Damon Hirst drop, right? He went to a lot of trouble to make sure that the rarity parameter was very exhaustively quantified. And he actually even publicized ahead of the drop that, you know, these were the density, the colors, the, um, what else was it? There were you know, a number of parameters, uh, right? The, the, the words and the titles, right? Where they were, they kind of conformed to certain themes, whether it was love, death, for example. So he, you know, Damien went, took the extra effort to, kind of systematize all these rarity parameters that would, you know, very knowingly then feed into the secondary market and how there would then expectedly be a very big price spread uh, across, you know, works from the same drop, but obviously, you know, some were more rare than others. And it's something that obviously he had more control of uh, because of the nature of the platform and the medium. It allowed him to really grasp that rarity um, attribute in a way that Picasso and other artists from you know the early 20th century wouldn't have really taken into account, I feel, because of the nature of how that art was produced. So I would I, I know what you're saying, but I would say that the collectible aspect does exist. And I think with the very fanatic or passionate collectors, it's almost the only thing that they can think about because they're obsessed with certain artists and they need to complete their collection, so to speak. But again, you know, obviously this is facilitated to a very, very different degree with, with generative art because of the nature of the process that produces these pieces. There's a key difference because I think the, I think the major defining, and in my personal opinion, the most important part of sort of collectibles versus fine art is not so much the rarities, but how the rarities take place. For example, in fine art, you know what you're buying, right? When you go to an auction, when you buy from an artist, you can see what you're buying. But in generative art and in collectibles, what happens is when the drop happens, you buy it, but you only see what you bought after you bought it. And so there's the loot box mechanic, right? Which comes from games where there's a chest that's dropped on the ground. You open the chest and you find out what you got in the chest. And, and, and this is, I think, that element of gambling that is critical. And that makes collectibles such successful NFT category. Um, and generative art to a certain extent has, has replicated this as well. And, and I feel like with, you know, this is probably the, one of the most important parts of what makes generative art such an attractive NFT category that where you buy something and then afterwards you, it, it's revealed. What Tyler Hobbs wrote in one of his essays on his own work and what he calls long form generative art. He said, and this was interesting to me because it was like, he said that he's always quite careful to build in a certain level of minimum 
like quality. So he 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 plays around with the algorithm and he's he's you know constructing these things, right? And he works until a point where he finds that even if he gets a so-called bad piece, that's still acceptably good. So he works it until, and I think it shows in his work. You see that it's so finely constructed that it's hard to really. I know what he means when he's when he's like, okay, even a, even a bad piece is kind of good. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Boys Rising. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe, follow, and give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor Is Rising. You can reach out to us, send us a question, and just send us a DM on Twitter at Floor Is Rising.